Hi and welcome back to the second episode of the 1823 podcast with this mini-series The Mental Edge and in today's episode we will be looking at the world's oldest rivalry, England versus Scotland. I'm Dr Francesca Champ and I'm Dr Gillian Cook, both lecturers in sport and performance psychology at Liverpool John Moores University. Hi and welcome back to our second episode of the 1823 mini-series, The Mental Edge Performance Psychology at the Euros. And today we're going to provide some of our reflections on the key talking points so far at the Euros. And I think there's been quite a few. And then we'll look ahead to the England versus Scotland game, which is actually the world's oldest rivalry. And I think the first thing that springs to mind for everybody at the moment in current society is COVID. And we've seen that COVID has continued to shape the Euros in ways in which we could have anticipated. So, for example, two more um, players from the Swedish national team have tested positive for coronavirus. Coronavirus. They missed the um, game against Sweden and they're now self-isolating. And over the weekend, Cancelo, who's a defender for Portugal, tested positive again for coronavirus and he will miss their opening game. But I think from probably a performance-based perspective, What's happened has been um, quite expected, really. So, for example, most of the favourites have actually come out on top in their games. We've seen that Italy won the opening game quite convincingly, really, against the Turkish side. England won against Croatia. Um, The Spanish team, unfortunately, only managed to draw against Sweden. But perhaps the shock of the tournament so far was the Denmark-Finland game, where Finland actually, um, the underdogs came out on top, but that was under really difficult and really challenging circumstances. I think what you've uh, brought up there really is probably the main, uh, as you say, discussion point of the tournament so far with... uh, Obviously, what what happened with with Christian Eriksen, the Danish team, and uh, as you say, Finland, and particularly, I think with if you look at if we start just with talking about the result, that Finland in their first ever major tournament ranked fifty four in the world beat. Denmark ranked 10 in the world so that is a very unexpected result but arguably it's not unexpected because of what happened and I think uh, we've um, it was horrifying scenes, awful scenes that, that we saw at that match and delighted that uh, Christian Eriksen put out a a message a couple of days ago saying that he was feeling uh, better and and feeling well, which I think we're all delighted um, and relieved is is probably the word that that he is, um, looks like he's on the road to recovery. But I think one thing to, to really focus on and that probably really absolutely led to that result is the trauma and just the psychological impact of what happened. So the the captain was brilliant in in that situation. He got the the players to form a a barrier around uh, Christian uh, Eriksen and that sort of protected him and and the team against the the, the media and and the different uh, cameras. He also was the first to go over and uh, comfort Christian Eriksen's wife. So uh, he did uh, admirably in that situation. But it's also the impact of of witnessing a teammate, someone you know, someone you care about, go into um, cardiac arrest on a pitch and that is shocking Uh, it's also uh, one of the reasons it's shocking is how similar players are so demographically they're all very similar very similar age uh, all same gender similar backgrounds obviously all same sport and uh, 
the if you see your your teammate in in that situation you then think oh gosh could that be me so it's very difficult to not have these intrusive thoughts but also just the sheer adrenaline overload of what happened in in that situation so with the uh, adrenaline the the danish players will have physically been absolutely exhausted and i think it's uh, incredible that they were able to go out and still play after after what happened so what, what you find when you know, the traumatic events happen and the brain goes into to say that, that adrenaline overload, the limbic system tends to take over. The limbic system is one part of the brain uh, that is very much controlled by emotion. It's one of the oldest uh, areas of the brain. Whereas to be a you know top footballer, top performer, you need the prefrontal cortex to be in charge. And that's rational thinking, uh, decision making, problem solving. But when you're in that heightened center of, of arousal, that heightened emotional state, it's the limbic system that takes over. And just that sheer adrenaline, I, I think it's incredible that the, the players were still able to, to go out and play and particularly with the, the you know the, the, this huge adrenaline spike I, when the, the players went back out you've potentially got that huge crash of adrenaline mm-hmm. so in terms of a, a really rousing motivational team talk to try and keep that adrenaline up before that crash comes uh, it was probably something that was was very much done but it doesn't surprise me that the players were probably uh, mentally uh, not physically able to to focus and play at their best in that match we've seen from the uh, elite performers and and was discussed in episode one that elite performers are adaptable and so they do have some things in their arsenal that can help them when it comes to coping with trauma they've got some things that that can help so that adaptability they'll also have coping mechanisms in their toolkit that they can can use but one thing that is really great to see is that I was reading that uh, four different uh, people had come into the Denmark hotel to help them with that situation because when you've had a, a traumatic uh, event what you want to be doing after that you do not want to debrief because debriefing actually just enhances trauma because you're re-traumatizing an event instead what you want to be doing is something called a trim uh, trauma risk management protocol where you are supporting players you're uh, saying and you're educating around it is natural to be up and down the, the everything you're experiencing is normal it is a natural emotion because sometimes what you can find is that some people don't cope because they're not coping and can get uh, upset uh, around that uh, so it's giving players the support to be able to uh, discuss things if they want to that peer support to really help them uh, try to get through a very difficult situation and i think you've touched upon a few really really important points there and i think if we go back a few steps when you mentioned like the players although they may well have been physically present in that they stepped on the pitch um at seven o'clock or half past seven that evening to carry on after 45 minutes Actually, whether they were truly present psychologically is a question that I think a lot of us will continue to debate. And although we really don't want to speculate, the decision that was made by UEFA and the decision that was made by the players to step out onto that pitch, we could argue that in that moment, were they able to um, truly 
consider, truly reflect on and truly, like, did they have the capacity to make an authentic choice to say the best option for us is to go back out there and is to continue with the game? And there's some really nice reflections from Kasper Schmeichel's father, Peter Schmeichel, who is also an ex-goalkeeper. And he um, suggested that the players were given three different options. And the first option was they go back out there that evening as a delay and they play the remaining 50 minutes, which ultimately the players did choose to take. The second option was that they return back to the stadium the next day. And there's some really nice reflections from the manager that said, I don't think any of my players or even me myself could have gone back to that same venue the next day because we would have had longer for the emotions to manifest. We'd have had longer to come to terms terms with what had happened and it would have been too traumatic and the final option that they were given from UEFA was to forfeit the game at a 3-0 loss which would have had a significant impact on their chances of progression through the tournament so I think that's really one thing and one talking point that we really need to consider in how able were these players to make an appropriate decision in the best interests of not only their performance but also their well-being their mental health their physical health to continue and um, that's probably something that did influence and did impact the way in which the game shaped up and probably contributed to the Finnish players having gaining that first win in major tournament performance and the second point that you mentioned that I'd really like to pick up on is where you talk about the support and potentially not dealing with it by debriefing at the time because when you talk about something that's so traumatic that's so at the forefront of your experiences that can actually enhance the trauma related response but for the players to be offered and recognized that each of them will make sense of that in their own individual way everybody um, has different ways in which they respond to situations different ways in which they react to situations for some people they may show a grief response immediately for others actually that might take weeks days maybe even months for them to process and to come to terms with so it's around that individualized support and recognizing that the crisis team that's come in to support those danish players need to tend to each individual player and staff member as the individuals that they are and i guess you might want to dip in with some protocol related things here um but i think there's lots of learning points no i think it's a, a really nice point you you pick up there that it's okay not to be okay mm-hmm. and that everyone will respond in an individual way as you say some people may appear to have, have more of a, a response and more of an emotional reaction than others but there's different timelines and it's for people to understand that you've got that individual approach but it is absolutely uh, making it more than easy for players to access that support with very much an open door as uh, it is very easy to 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 get support to to help manage this but one thing that just uh, reflecting on what you said there about the the choices or, or the decision making that was made at the time I am quite surprised that UEFA don't have a protocol in place for these situations because although uh, an incident like this is it's not particularly common it has happened before and it's good to have uh, protocols in place plans in place to then know uh, if if this particular uh, event happens when people are able to uh, be rational in the, the cold light of day in an office room somewhere they can think about what the best uh, 
outcome might be and, and how to respond and deal with these situations, it then makes it so much easier uh, in the situation that there's a, a plan in place, a management uh, protocol to, to go through instead of asking uh, players or, or different decision makers in that situation with all the emotions, with all the adrenaline uh, running around to expect people to be able to, to make a, a good decision in that situation is, is even more of a, a burden on people. But I think certainly to say that absolutely, I can probably speak from everyone at LGMU, that wishing Christian Eriksen a speedy recovery and delighted that he uh, looks to be uh, on his way to recovery. And I say, although it's a, a it certainly is tragic. There certainly are a lot of lessons, I think, for, for UEFA and different governing bodies to take forward, moving forward into the tournament. And I think one of the um, other, uh, talking about uh, moving forward in the, the tournament and certainly doing some reflections back, is uh, the Scotland-England match coming up, um, as you were saying, the, the world's uh, oldest football rivalry. Absolutely. And... Um I think, well, with you being Scottish and me being English, I think there's probably a bit of a rivalry between us two as well as we head into the latter part of the week. But I think the way in which the teams um, are currently positioned as a consequence of the first game and therefore how they look forward to the next game is really, really important. So England are entering the um, Scotland game on the back of a real high. They've arguably done what no English team has ever done before in the Euros, and that's that they won their first game. So we, what we've done is we've released some of that tension. We've got rid of some of those doubts. We've got rid of some of the cobwebs. We've now started to enter a flow and arguably we want to build upon that momentum. And if we look back to the Croatia game, we could see that perhaps it didn't go in the way that we expected. Yes, we won the game, but team selection was very different. And I think before the game, there's a lot of confusion from fans, from pundits, um, from commentators around the selection of Calvin Phillips, around the selection of Kieran, Tripp Kieran Trippier at left back. But what it does show and what really shines through for me is Gareth Southgate's knowledge, his knowledge and understanding of his group of players, both as individuals and as performers. It demonstrated that he truly understands what makes that team tick and that irrespective of the pressure that's placed on him from the media or any external voices, he has the confidence and the belief in himself and the unwavering belief in those that stand out on the pitch for him that they will do the job. So he's willing to take should we call them challenging managerial decisions? And they really paid off in that Calvin Phillips was undoubtedly in the run-in for man of the match. Raheem Sterling, who was a question mark around starting, scored the goal. And Kieran Trippett, Trippier at left back created a number of chances. So England are entering the game on a real high. They're boosted with the whole of the country behind them and we're all feeling really, really positive. Whereas it's probably a little bit of a different story for Scotland. Yes, as, as you were saying, England coming in on a, a, a really big high and that uh, a good performance and motivation to keep going. Whereas Scotland, uh, potentially more of a setback uh, the, in the, the first game, having lost when arguably the expectation of, of the media and the country was, was quite high. So really it's, it's important. I mean, arguably Scotland played quite well. There was a... A number of uh, chances that were created and so it's taking 
the positives that happened from that performance into the next performance because in tournament football games come thick and fast you do not have time to sit and dwell and feel sorry for yourself and go over all the the negatives and everything that didn't go well and it's looking at yes you you debrief you go through what what was our game plan what did we try to do what behaviors were we trying to do did we manage to do them did we not and then it's building for the next match and taking the things that people were doing well and building that up into super strengths and building that and going forward with with that momentum always looking forward never looking back mm-hmm. and I cannot think of a, a better game that Scott would be looking forward to than playing England uh, certainly the rivalry between the two countries certainly from Scotland's perspective if you go back historically you've got the Battle of Bannockburn the Battle of Culloden so all these uh, fierce battles hundreds and hundreds of years ago and now instead of fighting it out on the battlefield we're now fighting it out on the football pitch and so the players will be heroes if they, uh, if, if you score a goal against England or if you come away with a victory against England you will absolutely be a hero in the nation and that can really bring a a great sense of uh, enhanced motivation enhanced enthusiasm particularly when you play a rival you tend to get quite a different response than if you're playing a team that maybe you're more friendly against and I think when you talk about that rivalry there's been a lot of research around that and it's really interesting to show that When we um, are a member of a group, what we tend to do is we try and make ourselves belong or fit with that group. So we'll adopt that group's characteristics, we'll adopt that group's behaviours. So for example, for the Scottish camp, they will all strongly identify as a Scotland player. They will be buying into the values and the beliefs of what it means to be a Scottish national player. And subsequently then what that means they will do is they will exaggerate the differences between themselves and the England players. And by exaggerating that difference between your sense of belonging and an outside group so a group that you perceive to be a rival or perceive to be an enemy it increases the motivation as you say it increases that sense of purpose it increases the meaning of the game to say we are now playing against rivalry rivals we're playing against the team that we really 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 want to beat we don't just want to beat them we're desperate to beat them because they're so different to us because they don't fit with who we are we are so strong we're unified we're together and collectively when you talk about a battlefield it almost is like we will go to battle with those other players and when we look at the game I think there's a number of different factors that might shape what happens or shape how it plays out and whilst we can't predict what will happen during the game, I think we can be mindful of sharing our insights as um, sport and performance psychologists of some of the factors or some of the qualities that might shape how each individual performs. And I think the first one to look at is perhaps the history, um, who will enter the game as the favourites and who will enter the game as the underdogs. What we tended to see, which is quite surprising for me as an England fan, is that in the earliest games when England played Scotland, it was actually Scotland who thrived. So the first 12 times that they played each other on the competitive stage, Scotland won eight, England only won two. And Scotland were almost coined as being the technical and the tactical team, the team with a little bit more prowess, whereas England were coined as the more physical team. And what we have seen over the years is that that's shifted and it's now shifted in favour of England. So England will very much enter the team as the favourites, whereas Scotland will enter the game as the underdogs. But arguably, with it being at Wembley and the presence of the fans, anything could happen. 
think you're absolutely right that in these uh, situations where you're, you're playing a rival, you've got that enhan- enhanced sense of significance and meaning that you can, uh, different results than what you might expect on paper really can be thrown up, uh, particularly from a, a, not just from a, a Scottish perspective, but anyone that is playing a, a rival. You're, there's some really interesting research done at New York University looking at middle distance runners, and they found that when uh, they were competing against people that were uh, argue, you know, were running similar times. When they ran in the same event, they were more often than not recording personal bests. And what that really brings out is that when you are against a competitor, against a rival, your motivation really increases. You want to do well because you've got that enhanced sense of meaning, as you say. It goes back to your identity, your tribe. I'm doing it not just for me, I'm doing it for Scotland, for England. Uh, but also with that is that enhanced sense of effort and not just in football but in sport but also in business the higher sense of effort typically brings about higher levels of performance and we can even see in the business sector that when you are have two uh, different companies competing against each other it's a great thing because it brings about innovation and it brings about uh, enhanced you know both companies will perform so much better than if they were just uh, performing without that rival. It was something that Sir Alex Ferguson said back in 2012. He said that Liverpool wouldn't be the same team without Man United and Man United wouldn't be the same team without Liverpool. So I think that really uh, brings across the the sense that when you're playing a rival, you bring out that, that extra motivation, that extra effort, that extra persistence to keep going because you know what it, it means to, to you. You want to... I really um, bring back a, a great performance for the media, for the fans. And when you're able to, to execute that and without really going for it, then you can either get that lift in performance or sometimes we can see people's performance going down. And I think that's where it's really interesting with the fans coming into to Wembley because for a lot of competitors and athletes playing at the highest level fans can bring about a sense of social facilitation so by that I just mean the influence or effect of the audience on performance so for a lot of top athletes fans will enhance performance they will thrive under that pressure they will have that extra motivation not just of their own internal motivation and intrinsic motivation their own reasons why they perform but also they're doing it for everyone in that environment and that extra energy and boost that the fans give, the arousal or energy of the players go up and with that extra energy uh, people tend to revert to their habitual responses and if your usual response is to be scoring 8 out of 10 free kicks, it is much more likely to happen in a pressurised situation, whereas if your habitual response is maybe to score only 2 out of 10 free kicks, then again you're going into that habitual response and performance can sometimes go down. I think so, yeah, and I think what we're talking about here is the influence of the 12th man, and the 12th man, again, is a really common word that's used in footballing terms, but also in, more broadly, other sports as well, at the influence, the significant influence that fans can have on performance. And I think, Jill, you've summarised it really nicely in that, generally, fans improve performance, they facilitate optimal performance. The cheering, the shouting, the singing your name will just inevitably increase your motivation. It will increase that competitive drive, and it arguably will push you through and 
push you forwards when you do start to feel a little bit fatigued. But what we do have to recognise is that balance. We have to recognise that for some people, the fans is a positive, but for others, fans can make things seem a little bit too overwhelming. And I'd be really interested to see how this plays out at Wembley. So I think we're looking at a capacity of around 25,000 fans for the game. Only 3,000 of which or so will be the Scottish fans. But this is different to any time before because we've got a group of players, both the England players and the Scotland players, who are very much adjusted to not having a fan presence. And therefore, it will also take a period of adjustment for them to understand and recognise what it means to have those fans come back. For some people, as you say, it will be an ultimate positive. But for others, it might actually make the over the occasion a little bit overbearing and a little bit overwhelming. And that's where we see some of the detrimental impacts on performance. So, for example, when you talk about that habitual response, what we mean by habitual response is just what you do, what you revert to naturally in a challenging situation or in any situation. So, for example, if we've got players that are distracted by the fan presence, their performance will likely decrease. If you've got a player that normally has a pass percentage of 75 or 80% and they think about, I'm going to try a more challenging pass, the response then of the fans, if the fans are a little bit overwhelming, is that that pass may not be as accurate. That pass not may, fi- may not find their own teammate. And the reason why is because they have the external distractions which take away their attentional focus on what the skill that's at hand, so the skill execution. And another example of that might be penalties. And what we do see is that prior to a penalty, the crowd are roaring, the crowd are cheering, the opposition are booing. And actually we're focused on a really simple movement that's been well rehearsed but arguably what you do see is some players crumble under that pressure and although it's a skill that they're quite familiar with the fans have such a presence the fans have such an overriding ability to distract that they don't perform the skill successfully and they miss the penalty and so I think we have to be really mindful that this is a transition period for players they're getting back used to having fans in the stadium for some it will increase their performance for others actually it might just be a little bit too much a little bit too soon. It's a really nice point you bring up there about that yes you can have an enhancement of you know crowds and and that energy can boost some players performance they can really thrive with that extra energy whereas as you say in for some other players and in some other situations uh, players can wilt and crumble under that pressure as you were saying the the cognitive overload so uh, by that I just mean people have too much going on in their head they're not able to think clearly Uh, football is arguably a relatively simple game you will have uh, um, your match plan will will be decisions and you will have uh, tactics and different things that you were planning to do as a team whereas if you get um, if you're too over aroused or you've got too much energy going on you're not focusing on what you need to be focusing on and when we see top performance in psychology it's called clutch performance when people really thrive under pressure it's because they go into a flow state and they're 
uh, not thinking about oh I, I make better make sure I don't do this or don't do that or do, they just allow that performance to happen. They know what their role is. They they know how where their um, teammates should be, and they're just completely within that moment, enjoying that moment, and also really uh, as we'll see and I'm sure we'll see in, in the match on Friday, playing for the fans from a Scottish fans perspective. You can see how much it means to the the fans in 1977. Uh, when Scotland beat England, fans went onto the pitch and quite famously broke the, the crossbar. <laughs> uh, so really, it, it, um, there is that heightened significance. But it's also a heightened significance from the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's not just the, the, the fans and, and the individuals that are desperate to win and, and wanting to create heroes of these players, to beat your rivals, to, to beat people that are not you, as you say, from that identity perspective, you know who you are because of you know who you're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the media can also bring that added expectation and that can either help people, they can try to to live up to that and, and thrive with that and enjoy being on the front foot or some other teams and individuals can actually prefer being behind when they're the underdog. They don't have that pressure. So I think we'll see some uh, really interesting uh, impacts of how the media really impacts performance on Friday. And I've been super impressed with how the media and the England camp have almost come together for this tournament. It's notorious that England and the media have clashed in the past and we've had players like Wayne Rooney saying that he was petrified of saying or doing anything because of how it might be interpreted and how it might be communicated, perhaps some misrepresentations. And whereas this camp, what we've seen is that the media have been granted free access to the training facilities. They're engaging with the players more than they ever have before. And it seems to have taken a little bit of a more positive spin in what we might have seen previously, perhaps when Capallo was manager, is around not allowing players' family to travel abroad with them or that players had to be in the hotel room by a certain time. They weren't allowed on their phones. And I think what we're seeing this time is that the media is given a much more positive representation. They've shifted the narrative and it's now a narrative of support. They're getting behind the players. And that is probably um, recently represented with Raheem Sterling, where he's been a figure that has faced um, substantial scrutiny in the media around his personal and professional life. And I really enjoyed reading the article around his recent recognition for his charity work, his recognition for his work on um, racism, and also his professional performances in that we're celebrating these young individuals. And by celebrating them, we also give them that little bit more freedom where we've both talking about players being a little bit scared of failing and I think it's the same in the media they're scared of saying the wrong thing and actually now that's starting to shift for them to say we embrace the media we work with and we work alongside and we'll go on this journey together and I think ultimately that will only have a positive influence on how the players then perform on the pitch because social media and media in general is proven in the research to be a huge stressor that's faced by top level athletes that they have to overcome and navigate and negotiate their way through an intense competitive tournament where the media are present 24 7 might heighten or exaggerate those challenges and in contrast if you're walking alongside somebody and you feel at ease with them you feel comfortable and you're working together to get to your end destination I think that will have a much more of a positive influence on how the players go out there and they perform on on Friday evening. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really looking forward to the, the match and, and how it plays out and hoping uh, for a, a really good uh, 
intense and exciting match. So thank you very much for listening to us today. We started off with some of our reflections of the, the tournament so far with continu- you know, teams continually needing to adapt to different uh, COVID uh, situations. We also spoke about uh, the really um, awful uh, incident with Christian Eriksen and what the Denmark team have been through and how psychologically that can impact uh, not just performance but also an individual player's well-being and uh, that response to trauma. We also touched on the uh, surprised that UEFA don't have protocols in place and that there might potentially be some lessons for the future to take forward about uh, incidents that happen that are aren't necessarily common but they do happen and to have that uh, management and planning in place will make things better for the future and then we started to uh, to touch on the Scotland-England match and some of the thoughts that uh, might be feeding into the players that enhanced motivation that enhanced effort of playing against your rival and what it means to to you and your identity you're playing for yourself but also the badge on your shirt you see people kissing their mm-hmm. the badge to really show how much they love and identify with with their country and I also touched upon at the end there the influence that the fans might have how that might enhance people's performance or it might go the other way and also how the media uh, is potentially also now either helping or potentially hindering uh, performance so thoroughly uh, looking forward to the, the next matches that are coming up and particularly on Friday and thank you very much for listening Thank you